Well, such a great morning in the Lord's house. Great to see you here today in our celebration. Those that uh, I was able to greet in our summit service, all those watching online, those watching on television, uh, we're glad that you've joined us for worship today. It is Sunday, and that's Resurrection Day. It's the greatest news ever. Jesus is risen. And so since Christ is resurrected, how now shall we live? That's the question uh, that we're seeking to answer as we take about 10 weeks to study uh, the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. Last week, we were in 2 Corinthians 1, and we learned the, uh, the, the fact that since Jesus is resurrected, we have access to the only true source of genuine comfort, genuine encouragement, and genuine strength because God is the God of all comfort. God comforts us so that we can funnel that comfort into the lives of others and God's comfort can be stimulated by the prayers of God's people for God's other people. Now today, we're going to uh, tackle perhaps a more difficult passage to preach. We're going to learn today from 2 Corinthians 2 that resurrected living means not only that we play an important role in the lives of other believers in their comfort, in them receiving the comfort of the Lord, but we also play an important role in the lives of other believers when it comes to them winning some battles with sin and temptation. We have a role in the lives of the people around us if they're going to live their best godly life. If sin is the great enemy, the enemy that destroys lives and marriages and ministries, if sin is the enemy that robs believers of joy and peace, if it is the enemy that keeps our brothers and sisters in Christ from truly honoring the Lord, then shouldn't we do all we can to help our friends, our Christian friends, especially those in our faith family, in our church, walk more faithfully and more obediently? So I want us to look at this passage today, 2 Corinthians 2, we'll begin in verse 5. I want to read through the passage, I'll point out some important things as we do, and then we'll draw really some important lessons about how we can love the people around us and help them live a more God-honoring life. Verse 5, Paul writes, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused pain, not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. Now really, you have to understand a little bit of the context here, and this goes back even to the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote another letter to the church in Corinth that is not a part of our Bibles. We don't have a copy of that letter, and so really 2 Corinthians is Paul's third letter. And so you have to understand a little bit of the background here to understand this verse. Paul is talking about an individual in the church who was guilty of sin and of continued sin. 
someone who refused to repent of his sin. Now, this could be the person that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about an individual in the church who is guilty of sexual sin. He had been confronted and he refused to repent. He wanted to stay in the church and be a part of the fellowship, but he wanted to continue in his sin. And so Paul had given instructions in 1 Corinthians 5 just how they should handle such a thing. I'll point to just a little bit of it. Verse 2, Paul said, remove from your congregation the one who did this. Paul says if he refuses to repent, now this is back in 1 Corinthians, then you need to remove him from the church. And then verse 5, this sounds ominous, but it's important. Paul says, hand that man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So through Paul's commands, through the, the Lord's commands, through the apostle Paul, the church was told if somebody in the church refused to repent of his sin, of her sin, then that person should be put out of the church. They should be treated like a non-member. Now, scripture makes the point here Back in 1 Corinthians 5, and we'll see it again here in 2 Corinthians 2, the whole purpose of this was ultimately to rescue that person. This isn't punishment, punitive uh, kind of thing to hurt somebody. This is all about restoring a fallen believer. Now, Paul may be talking about that person, that specific person that he mentions in 1 Corinthians 5, or maybe he's talking about somebody else. We see here in 2 Corinthians 2, 5, that this is a person who is guilty of attacking Paul's leadership and authority. And when he attacked Paul's leadership and authority, he really hurt the mission of the church. And so it's a very, it's a very serious thing. So Paul's telling them, now that this this person who is guilty of sin, uh, whether it's the 1 Corinthians 5 person or another person, uh, they have dealt with that person in a godly way, and then that person has repented. Now Paul's going to give the instructions what to do next. Look at verse 6. Paul says, the punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. Now what kind of punishment is he talking about? Uh, well, it it likely would have included that person not being allowed to take the Lord's Supper and not being allowed to be a part of any kind of fellowship or any kind of meal that the church might have. Uh, they wouldn't ban a person from coming to hear the Bible taught, but they would not allow the person uh, this is what the punishment was. They would not allow the person to really be a part of the faith family. Now it says the punishment by the majority. Now the word majority there doesn't imply that there was a minority. It's not some split decision. Uh, that word is usually translated many. What it's saying is, is this is not something just the leadership of the church did. This is something the whole church was committed to, that we, that we brought these uh, uh, restrictions in this man's life or this woman's life uh, to help them uh, recognize the seriousness of sin, and we were all together in the effort. Now, the, 
The next word there, important, verse 6, is sufficient. Uh, the punishment by the majority is sufficient for that purpose, uh, for that person. Uh, Paul is saying that it worked. Uh, the person has repented. Uh, the goal, as we've said, for any of this punishment or restrictions, uh, the goal was never to hurt somebody. The goal was always to restore a person. Uh, so this person, apparently he or she has repented of the sin and they are ready to be restored. So look at verse 7. It says, as a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him, otherwise he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Uh, so clearly the offender is guilty, but now it's time to forgive him and to comfort him. We'll learn what that means in a moment. Look at verse 8. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Now that's an interesting phrase, reaffirm your love. To reaffirm your love means it implies that you loved him throughout this entire process. You see, even when a fellow believer is in some continual and terrible sin, we should love that person from the beginning of the process all the way through the end. And you see that here. Paul says, let's reaffirm that we love him. Not we're going to start loving him now that he's repented, but we're going to let him know that we have always loved him. So through the entire process, from pointing out uh, the guilty person's sin to demanding repentance to the punishment that he went through and now the forgiveness, the restoration and the comfort, they loved him through the whole thing. Now, verse nine, I wrote uh, for this purpose to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. Church, sometimes the hardest thing uh, for us to do is to hold somebody accountable for their sins. And whether that's uh, the church doing it, uh, whether it's uh, uh, an instance where a minister or a pastor has to take a stand, or more often it's uh, just one Christian to the other, it's a difficult thing, but it's a test of whether we'll be obedient to the Lord in all things. Now, verse 10, he says, Any, anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ. Now, it's interesting that he says, I forgive you in the presence of Christ. Well, what is he telling us here? Well, we forgive, why? Because Christ forgave us. Now, sometimes it's hard to forgive. C.S. Lewis says, forgiveness is a beautiful thing as long as somebody else has to do it. So, when we forgive, the motivation for that forgiveness is that Christ has forgiven us. I'll talk with people from time to time about forgiveness and they'll say, Pastor, I could never forgive that person. I could never forgive that person. You don't know what they have done to me. What's the, what's the pastoral reply? Well, I don't know what they've done to you, but I also don't know what you've done to the Lord. But I do know that the Lord's forgiven you and because of that forgiveness, we should forgive, we should forgive others. 
Now we notice here that the whole process, punishment, forgiveness, restoration, is not just about Paul. It's not just about the one who has been sinned against, and it's not just about the one who has sinned. It's a matter of the health of the church. He says, anyone you forgive, I do too, for what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit. The whole church, if it's a healthy church, the whole church will benefit when we, when we undergo this, uh, this process, when we forgive. Churches that either ignore the punishment end, the restriction end, or churches that ignore the forgiveness end and the restoration end, either way, those churches will become weak. And they will just degenerate into groups of people who like to bicker and, and fuss. And uh, we all know churches like that. We all know Christians like that. Uh, but we need to be uh, committed to uh, taking a stand on sin without question. And we need to be committed to forgiveness and comfort. So look at verse 11. He says, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan... Uh, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So Satan is the adversary of the church. Satan does all he can to hurt, to hinder, to destroy the church. And Satan is looking for opportunities when a church refuses to either hold a standard or forgive and comfort when people, uh, when people repent. So those are all very hard verses to tackle. Uh, I, uh, frankly wanted to skip them and get to something easier, uh, but it's here and it's important and it says something about resurrected living. And so we need to understand what they teach us. Now, the most important thing I want you to see here before we get into the details, I want you to see this, uh, this overarching truth. This is about love. This is about one believer, one Christian loving his brothers or sisters in Christ. It's about our church being a place of love. It's about people coming into our church and experiencing love. It's about love beginning to end. And that's why Paul says, I urge you to reaffirm the love that you have for this, for this man who has been guilty of this terrible sin, whatever it was. I want you to reaffirm to him that you have loved him from beginning and you will love him through the end. It's all about love. But what should we do? What should we do when we have a friend, a fellow believer, who is caught up in some sin? What should we do when a fellow church member is being unkind or unloving to his wife? What should we do when a fellow believer is gossiping or, or maybe losing his temper? What should we do if we have a friend, a Christian friend who is unfaithful in marriage? Uh, if we have a brother uh, who attacks church leaders or their authority or someone continues to say things that are untrue? So what should we do? What should we do? Well, we should love that person. For his sake, we should love him or her sake. For your sake, you should love him or her. For our sake, we need to love. And mostly for the sake of the glory of God, we need to love. But how do we love? How do we love? And I think these brief verses that we've read, they, they tell us how to love. Now, church, this is, uh, 
This won't be the easiest message to preach and, and perhaps not the easiest message to listen to, but let's see if we can put some practical feet to this and answer the question, since we are resurrected believers, since Christ has risen, how then do we love the people who are with us in church? Number one, we love by admonishing, admonishing. I tried to think of a better word there. Uh, admonish means a gentle rebuke. And I just think that's the best word. We love by admonishing. So if you have a friend or there's a fellow Christian, someone you're close to straying from the Lord, uh, maybe in sexual sin, maybe they're no longer worshiping faithfully with their church family, maybe they're gossiping or neglecting their family, they have a temper, maybe it's substance abuse, maybe it's language, it could be a thousand things. How do you love your friend? You love your friend by saying something. I know that that's hard, but that is loving. Now our church doesn't really have a formal system or practice of church discipline. That's 100% on me. I have thoughts and plans. We'll talk one day when I've been here five more years. <laughs> but even with a formal practice, 99% of church discipline is just one Christian going to another Christian and loving him enough to say something and offer help. So why should we do this? No one enjoys this. Or if you do, then you don't need to do it, okay? We'll explain why in a moment. So why should we do this? Why should we ever admonish a fellow believer? Well, the first reason, the clearest reason, is it's just biblical. I could give you a dozen verses, more than a dozen. I'll give you just a handful. Jesus said in Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Can't get any plainer than that. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Uh, Titus 2, 15, uh, this is um, an instruction to pastors. It says, proclaim these things, Paul says, encourage and rebuke with all authority. And then just... Uh, just to be fair, in 1 Timothy 5.20, there are instructions for if the pastor is guilty of sin or if a deacon is guilty of sin, and it says publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. Publicly rebuke those who sin. And I think, as I said, when you read that in context, that's talking about a pastor, a minister, a deacon, it's not, uh, we're not going to bring you up here and, <laughs> and, and start uh, reading some accusations, but uh, it says something about how we should handle sins in leadership. Uh, now, there's a quick note here. This is not about confronting people uh, who are not in the church. This is not about confronting your lost neighbor. Uh, that's probably, uh, well, that's not commanded in Scripture. And that wouldn't be helpful. We're talking about those who represent themselves as Christians. So the first reason we do this, simply, it's biblical. Secondly, because the Spirit transforms people. 
Uh, the Bible teaches that God, through his Holy Spirit, shapes us and forms us into the character of Christ. I'm a different person than I was a year ago, or five years ago, or 10 years ago. I hope you're a different person. God, is, God has changed some things in me. Thankfully, there's still a whole list of things he's still working on. We are being transformed. We believe that people can change. That's why we shouldn't just uh, turn our heads when a fellow believer is uh, caught in some continual sin. We want to be an agent of that change. Now, the third reason we should do this is we just simply desire that our distinctive lives, both as individuals and as a church, that our lives honor the Lord. You don't want your pastor's picture to be on the front page of the paper next week uh, with uh, me in handcuffs uh, because I was arrested for drunk driving. Would that create a little bit of a problem here? Yes, because not just because the pastor, uh, you know, is going to have to take 30 to 60 days off, but uh, I don't know what the punishment is for that, but but because, well, that doesn't represent Christ in our community. And that's true not just of the pastor, but it's true of all of us. And, and we should be concerned that we represent Christ well, but we should also be concerned that our brothers and sisters represent Christ well. Well, there's, there are many reasons that we should do this. It's a, it's a command, it's important, but why? Is it so hard? Uh, no one, few people, I should say, enjoy confronting somebody about their sin. Why is it so hard? Well, I've tried to do some biblical thinking about this, and I want to share with you three words, and each of these words really represents one of the reasons why it's so hard. Uh, I had eight. I'm just going to share three. That's your that's my present to you today. So three, three words. Number one, standards, standards. It's hard to admonish a fellow Christian because the world says there is no objective standard of right and wrong. There's no wrong way to live. Well, this should be the easiest one to handle. There is a wrong way to live right? There is an objection, objective standard, and it's the Word of God. Christians shouldn't be embarrassed by God's Word. We shouldn't be embarrassed by God's standard of right and wrong. The world may reject this standard. Many churches, even close churches, may be embarrassed about this standard, but it is the standard of God's word and there is a clear right and a clear wrong. We must never diminish the veracity, the clarity, or the immutability of God's word. What does that mean? God's standard is true. God's standards are clear. God's standards don't change with our culture. But it's hard. It's hard to confront someone in this world where so many people believe that there is no right and wrong, but we are Christians. And we're talking about confronting, we're talking about loving fellow Christians. 
And a part of being a Christian is that, is that we have confidence in God's word, in God's standard. For us, there is a standard of right and wrong. There is a standard. The second word I want to give you is the word criticism. It's hard to admonish a fellow Christian because the world says you cannot judge or criticize people because you will be unloving when you do. You can't judge me. That's not a very loving thing. All of us want to be loving, right? And the world says if you're critical, you're not loving. And it is true that people can criticize in an unloving manner. That does happen. But that's not a reason to no longer admonish people over their sins, Christian to Christian. That's simply a reason to do it in the right manner. That's simply a reason to make sure that we are loving when we, when we point out sin, yet the world makes this so hard uh, because it, it tells us, it tells everyone over and over that it's wrong to criticize. When a parent admonishes their child, is that parent being unloving? No. When a, if a fellow citizen uh, were to be on the side of the road one day when it's uh, uh, foggy and you can't see and, and he's waving his arms and he's trying to get you to stop your car and, and you do and you find out that the road is washed out or a bridge has failed or there's, or, or, or there's a wreck that you wouldn't have seen. Is that person who has stopped you from from traveling down a road you wanted to travel down? Is that person being unloving? If the doctor warns you that certain activities or certain foods are going to make you sick, is that doctor being unloving? No. He is being, she is being loving. You know, none of us want to make people feel uncomfortable. And I think that likely drives uh, the fact that we're reticent to confront somebody, a fellow Christian, about their sin. Nobody wants to make someone feel uncomfortable. And you may, uh, you may not like this, but the truth is a little bit of discomfort is sometimes a very good thing. Uh, we live in this world where we don't want anybody to ever be offended. And we don't want anybody to ever be uncomfortable. We don't want anybody to ever feel guilty. Well, uh, where did that come from? Sometimes you need to be uncomfortable. Sometimes you need to feel convicted and guilty. Let's look back at, at verse 7. We read it a moment ago. As a result, 2 Corinthians 2, 7. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. So he says that there is excessive grief. What does that mean? If there is excessive grief, then there's another kind of grief, right? Good grief. We're so worried we're going to make some people feel uncomfortable. But sometimes people need to feel uncomfortable. I'm thankful my my mom made me feel uncomfortable about my sin sometimes. Um, the Bible says in 
a verse we'll get to in a few weeks, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Just listen to this. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. So there is a godly grief, and there's a worldly grief. We don't want worldly grief, but we want godly grief. And, and sometimes it's okay if people feel a little bit uncomfortable. That's something that God can use. Of course, we want to be gentle. Let me point, it, point you to another verse, Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, uh, if, if someone is overtaken in a wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. So we're not going to be obnoxious. We're not going to have a goal of making someone uncomfortable, but we shouldn't shy away from admonishing someone for sin just because they are uncomfortable. Now, I should say, and I alluded to this earlier, if you enjoy admonishing somebody, uh, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And if it's not the most difficult and uncomfortable thing for you to do, then don't do it. This is supposed to be hard because we care about people, right? But we must not withhold our love simply because we may make someone feel uncomfortable. Uh, you don't want the doctor uh, to not treat some serious illness because the treatment might be temporarily uncomfortable, right? Oh, you want him, you want her to treat you well. The third word is the word hypocrisy. It's hard to admonish a fellow Christian because the world says, you can't point to the sins in others' lives because you have sin in your own life. And I know this is something that we all struggle with. Uh, you can't point to somebody else's sins because you're guilty of sins. Well, of course, we want to guard against being hypocritical uh, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 3, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Oftentimes when, when people are critical of others, they're guilty of the very same thing and maybe to a greater degree. Uh, the Bible also says that we should be constantly disciplining our own lives. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul said, I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I will not be disqualified. So, we need to be careful that we're not ignoring our sin when we're confronting others. We should live a very disciplined life. But the Bible still commands us to admonish. We love people by admonishing. You know, perhaps the best way to admonish someone for his sins is just to start by confessing your own sins. Uh, I've discovered that that's probably uh, one of the best ways to deal with this thought of hypocrisy. Just, just lead with it. In fact, I've got a, a meeting set up uh, with somebody this week. I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to start with my sins, and then we'll talk about the other person's sins. Uh, listen, hypocrisy, a concern about hypocrisy is frankly often just an excuse for us not to do the things that we know we should do. And the truth is, those who are most worried about their own hypocrisy are generally the people who are not hypocrites. A hypocrite generally has no idea that he's a hypocrite, that she's a hypocrite. Um, 
Let me tell you what you can do with the thoughts of personal hypocrisy. Uh, first, if someone, if you never sometimes struggle with those thoughts, if you never sometimes feel hypocritical, then that's probably a sign you're just not walking closely with the Lord. You're not daily confessing your sins. Um, if you're impressed with your own faithfulness and obedience to the Lord, then you are deluded. I can tell you that every faithful preacher and teacher of God's word struggles with this. I promise you. Uh, I don't want you to think that everything I preach on on Sunday morning is something that I have 100% nailed down in my life. It's not true. And I struggle with this. I struggle with this. But thoughts of personal hypocrisy shouldn't keep us from doing what we should do, loving and admonishing our friends. Thoughts of personal hypocrisy should just drive us to our knees in confession and repentance and pleas for help and strength and victory from the Lord. Hypocrisy. So how do we love our brothers in Christ by admonishing? I want to give you, because I want this to be practical, I want to give you some examples. Uh, what if you have a friend who is failing to honor his wife or his family? So you might say this. Listen, man, I know how hard marriage can be. I struggle sometimes. My wife and I had a hard patch a couple of years ago, and it was 100% my fault. But I'm so thankful that the Lord got my attention and hammered some things into my hard head before it was too late. And I see you going down the same path. I love you, and I'm going to walk this journey with you, but I'm telling you as your friend, you're not honoring your wife, you're not honoring your kids, and you're not honoring the Lord. I want to help you. Okay, will that be hard to say? Absolutely. But is that loving a fellow believer? Absolutely. What if, what if you have a, a Christian friend who, who gossips? Perhaps you'd say, honestly, let me tell you, there is something in me that really enjoys hearing stories about that woman and her problems. But I'm struggling with that because I know for me, that part of me that enjoys it, I know that that's sin. It would help me if we could partner with each other to overcome this desire to talk about her or him or those things. Now, would that be hard to say? Yes. But is that loving? Yes. What if somebody's involved in sexual sin? Maybe you'd begin by saying, let me tell you, I know exactly how the apostle Paul felt when he said in 1 Timothy 1.15 that he was the worst sinner ever. Uh, I once heard a preacher say that there is no sin that we're incapable of committing given the right circumstances. And I know that that's true. So I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to love you. But you know that the relationship you're in, it doesn't honor God. It's sin. And it will burn you, it will burn the other party, it'll burn your family, our friendship, 
and the honor of God. And I'm going to love you no matter what, but this has got to change and I want to help. Would that be hard to say? Yes. Would that be loving? Yes. What about someone who's unfaithful in their church attendance? I know you have a million things going on in your life right now. I get it. But you aren't going to church faithfully. I've missed you. And you know that that dishonors the Lord. It sets a bad example for other believers. And it's putting you on a path of inevitable greater sin. And I don't want to get into your business. Uh, but I've had some men come around me a couple of times in my life and point out some blind spots for me. And I'm thankful for how much those men cared about me. And I care about you. And I want to help you with this. Okay, would that be hard to say? Yes. But that's loving. And it's biblical. And it's God-honoring. If we really believe that sin dishonors the Lord, if we really believe that sin hurts people, if we really love our brother or sister in Christ, then we will say something. We'll say something. We're a family. We'll say something. So we love by admonishing. Now, very quickly, let me give you the last two. We'll love by forgiving. If you look back up at verses 6 and 7, uh, this punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Not only should we love fellow believers by admonishing, but we should love them by forgiving them. If our practice of admonishing will seem countercultural, and it will, the world will think that's nuts. Okay, that's fine. But our forgiveness, our forgiveness in the church, the way we love and forgive each other, that certainly ought to be countercultural. The world ought to be baffled to the, about the extent to which we will forgive each other. Why? Because our forgiveness is based on the extraordinary forgiveness of the Father. And so we ought to have extraordinary forgiveness for people around us. And the world should shake their heads at how completely, comprehensively we, we forgive. I'll read a couple of verses, Luke 17, 3 and 4. Jesus said, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, the next verse, here's what Jesus says. You, you probably won't like this. <laughs> and if he sins against you seven times in a day, what would you do if somebody sinned against you seven times in a day? He says, if, if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now that seems almost irresponsible. But that's how much forgiveness there ought to be in the house of God. The world ought to, ought to be stunned that we will admonish one another. And they ought to be blown away how quickly we'll forgive each other. Our extraordinary forgiveness doesn't mean that we don't have a standard. It doesn't mean we shouldn't confront or admonish our Christian friends. But extraordinary forgiveness means that once a believer repents, then there are no second-class citizens in the church. There are no scarlet A's in the church. There are no grudges in the church. And there are no long memories in the church.
See, love in the church equals forgiveness. And I don't have time, but this, I've got to show you this. John 13, 35 is a verse that we preachers like to quote often. Um, and I'm going to quote it, or I'm going to give it to you. But then we'll go back and I want you to see the verse before it. Because that's really where the, uh, where the action happens. So 1335, Jesus says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. So we pastors say, you got to love each other. That's how the world will know that what we have is genuine. The world should be amazed at how much we love each other. But what does it mean to love each other? Does it mean that you... Uh, bring somebody a casserole when, they're, uh, you know, when they get their toe operated on? Well, perhaps, but that's not specifically what it's talking about. If you go to the verse before that, let me read John 13, 34. Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you, love one another. He says the love I'm talking about here that the world is going to be impressed with is the kind of love you've received from Jesus. Now, what's the primary expression of Jesus' love to us? Forgiveness, right? That's what this is talking about. When it says the world will know that you are my disciples because you love one another, he's saying the world will know that you're genuine believers in Jesus and that this Jesus thing is real because you so quickly forgive one another. So quickly forgive. The world should be amazed at our quick and comprehensive forgiveness of one another. Number three, we should love by comforting. So if you look back at verse seven again, one more time, as a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Uh, we don't just forgive, we comfort. We learned last week that the word comfort means to come alongside someone and provide strength and wisdom and direction and support. So we should not just forgive, but we should seek to help our fellow Christians live a life that honors the Lord. It says in verse, at the end of verse 7, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Uh, overwhelmed means, uh, means, to be, means to be drowned. It's the same word in the Septuagint. Uh, that was used of Jonah being swallowed up by the whale. It means to be overwhelmed. Now, how many of you remember COVID? Remember when we had this pandemic and it was a health crisis in America? Well, I believe that the world faces today a mental and emotional health crisis that's every bit as terrible as COVID. And um, follow me around, uh, listen to the things I hear, and you will believe the same. So what's the solution? What's the solution to all the depression and the stress and the anxiety? Well, there's a long controversial answer to that, and I've preached on that before and will again. But listen, at least one critical part of that is the church is the church. See, the church should be a place where overwhelmed people, 
overwhelmed with grief or sorrow or guilt or depression or discouragement, a place where those people can come and they find comfort and encouragement. They're not embarrassed to talk about their problems. They're not embarrassed to say they struggle. They don't have to hide things. They don't have to pretend to be somebody that they're not. They don't have to pretend to be happy all the time if they're not. They can just come and find comfort here. If, if the church was truly a place that, that doled out the comfort of God, then the church would be the critical piece in people overcoming these almost uh, pandemic levels of, of mental and emotional health problems. The church should be our lifeline. So how do people, how do we provide comfort to people? Well, we don't provide comfort by ignoring sins. That, that's what a lot of churches, mainline kind of churches, well, we'll just change the definition of sin. We'll, we'll say that uh, nothing's really a sin anymore. A lot of churches are trying that. There's no comfort in that. Uh, no comfort in that. We don't ignore sin. We don't lower standards. We don't tell people uh, that their sin or their unfaithfulness is no big deal. Uh, behind the scenes or publicly. Uh, ministers, we uh, pressured all the time just to, just to have a very casual approach to sin. And, and, and it's, it's not that we, we want to be mean. It's that that's not, that's not comforting. So how do we comfort? We stay connected with each other. We say hard things. We're aware of each other's burdens and needs and hurdles and sins. And we're a champion for God's word in the lives of our Christian friends. So resurrected living. What does it mean, resurrected living? Christ is resurrected. So, so what? Well, it means in part that God has created a community. The body of Christ, the church a community of believers, of people who are new creations because of the resurrection, a group of people that love each other enough to admonish and then to forgive and then to comfort. My prayer is that First Baptist Nacogdoches will be a true resurrection community. If nobody in the last three years has ever come, I didn't plan to say this church, but listen, if in your life, you're a believer, you're in our church, if nobody over the last three years has come to you and put their arm around you and said, listen, I'm concerned about something in your life and I wanna help you. A mild rebuke and admonishment well, listen, you've missed a blessing. We ought to be close enough to people that somebody can do that. We need it. And, listen, in the last three years, if you hadn't done that for somebody else, you failed to deliver a blessing. Now, if you do it once a week, <laughs> you just need to go to another church, okay? <laughs> I can recommend some. <laughs> Let's be a resurrection community.
Don't you want to be a part of that? I do. So let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. I want to end by extending an invitation for you to join a resurrected community. It begins with putting your faith and trust in Jesus. You're guilty of sin. Sin separates you from God and ultimately from eternal life. But Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins, died on the cross, and he rose from the grave to give you new life. And if you'll turn from your sins and you'll trust Christ, then you'll be a part of the resurrected community. You'll be a new creation in Christ. I invite you today, if you've never done that before, uh, there'll be ministers right down front. I'll be one of those. Uh, just step down while we're singing. We'll not embarrass you, I promise. And just say, I want to join the resurrection community. And we'll help you from there. Father, Father, lead us and help us to honor you in everything we do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together in both services.